0: So, good evening, everyone. I'm struck in coming in here tonight by how different it feels in here than it did a few nights ago. Are you aware of that? Are you aware of how much you have settled as a group? Maybe, individually, you might not be totally in that space, but overall, there's been such a lovely settling that has happened over these days. So, we're headed in the right direction. (laughs) Where we are going, we still are not sure, but... It's a good sign, this settledness. And that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight. We've been talking a lot about working with the body, and tonight I want to turn our attention to working with the mind and heart, um, and talk a little bit about what are called the three trainings of mind and heart in Buddhist practice. I want to begin with a story, which is a story of a road trip that I took Oh, some years ago, um, in New Mexico, northern New Mexico, one summer, it was about seven or eight years ago, I think, I went with a companion on a, on a uh, summertime road trip, and it felt very spontaneous and carefree and just kind of drifting with, our, with the wind and seeing where we wanted to go day by day. That was the mood. So we stopped for gas at some gas station somewhere out in the countryside and they had a little basket of like Indian charms or something like that and you could buy a charm for a nickel and you would get in the charm a fortune. So I bought one and I opened it and read it and here's what it said a major life crisis awaits you. (laughs) Don't imagine you can't lose all your money. You can. Well, needless to say, the effect was a bit disappointing. (laughs) if not downright sobering. It was like, oh my God. (laughs) It put a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, that kind of feeling in the middle of this otherwise delightful trip. and Yet, when I reflected on it as time went on, it it began to assume a kind of um, Uh, friendly um, kind of message because having done practice in this tradition I have heard these stories about the four heavenly messengers over and over again so it was sort of a, a little bit of an amusing reminder and that as happy as our trip was it was a reminder that it was fleeting that it was a wave in the big ocean of life and who knows what the future will bring. Eventually, I reflected, in all of our lives there will be a crisis. There will be a loss. It is inevitable. It's not personal. It's not a result of some failing on our part, but simply the way it is in this life. How we talked the other night about the Four Heavenly Messengers and how it was that this is what provoked the Buddha to go on his search. In the face of such messengers in our own lives, what do we do? We often look for some kind of security. We live in a culture that is obsessed with security, homeland security, personal security. Security for your loved ones, security for your car, your home, your body, your (laughs) You know, there's a a sense of looking for security. I have a friend who uh, is a nurse, and she talks about some of the common ways that she sees people in the hospital who are dealing immediately with situations of illness or death. She says, I notice people sometimes view following a healthy lifestyle as a lucky charm. I'm going to eat right, do yoga, take supplements, and nothing bad will ever happen to me. (laughs) You know, we can all find that in ourselves. Not that these are not good things to do, but to sort of use them in that way of looking for some sort of guarantee is misguided. When we hear someone has died, we may try to distance ourselves from our own inevitable demise by reflecting on aspects of our lifestyle that keep us safe. We say to ourselves, well, she smoked, that's why she got lung cancer. I don't smoke, so I won't get lung cancer. I'm safe from that one. Well, maybe, maybe not. We are always trying to find security in our lives, trying to control things in our lives. And we are upset when life does not bend to our control. Or, we look for someone to blame. That's the other thing that certainly goes on in the medical world. When things go awry, we look for somebody to sue. Well, I'll sue them. I shouldn't have lost my foot in this operation. I'm going to sue. We don't consider that it might just be the nature of the way things are that inherent in life And this is what the Buddha talked about endlessly. Inherent in life is this undependability, the fact that things are impermanent and that they do change constantly. We never know in what direction they are going to change, for the better or for the worse. So what did the Buddha say about the ultimate security? That's what I want to talk about tonight. He gave a teaching called the Mangala Sutra, and in the uh, Sanskrit language, mangala means protective amulet. So he was playing on that idea that uh, then, as now, people wear these kind of protections, protection cords. We even do this sometimes here at Spirit Rock. We, we do a little ceremony where we all receive a, pr- a, a protection cord. that Jack Cornfield always says is meant to protect us from ourselves. That's the the person we most need to (laughs) protect ourselves from. And it's worth remembering that. But we do we do like that feeling of some sort of amulet or or object that we can wear that we feel will provide a sense of protection. So the Buddha played on that that idea but he turned it around And he said, you want to find true security, true protection? Let me tell you where to look. He said, it is in the cultivation of three qualities of mind and heart. What are they? The cultivation of sila, of supporting and expressing our wholesome qualities. Sila a moral foundation for our lives, having values which incline our mind in the direction of cultivating positive qualities of kindness, compassion, patience, forgiveness, tolerance, openness, generosity, that this is the foundation of our practice. The second quality of mind and heart that he talked about is the training in samadhi, concentration, learning how to collect our attention and stabilize it in our present experience. Sound familiar? This is what we have been unrelentingly feeding you for the last few days, encouraging you to keep coming back, whether it's coming back to the breath or to the yoga pose, to your sensations in your body, to the noticing of the steps as you walk. And the third quality of mind and heart that he spoke about is the quality called punya, which is liberating insight or wisdom, cultivating a way of seeing that awakens in us wisdom. It is a deep seeing into the moment-to-moment truth of our existence. (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit tonight about these three qualities as being uh, very useful ways of thinking about our practice. People often ask, well, how do I take this practice home with me? How do I integrate this practice into my life. Well for myself I think of these three as really very good ways of knowing how to do that. In the last year I bought a home in the high desert of Arizona and for the first time in my life I have a garden and I have been really enjoying um, planting things and watching them grow. In this particular uh, I never knew that deserts could be so um, uh, bountiful but this particular desert being somewhat high and with a little water you put something in the ground and it just takes off. It's pretty amazing to watch. So I've planted trees, which a year ago were really, you know, just small trees and pots, and now they're like 12 feet high, and I've been enjoying watching them grow. And I imagine, when I look at the trees especially, how their roots are going deep, deep, deep into the earth and finding water way down there, finding nutrients. And I think of training our minds in sila, in samadhi, and insight is like growing a firmly rooted tree. The, the tree's roots are like sila. They're like our foundation. They provide the support for our practice. Samadhi is like the trunk of the tree and punya or insight is like the crown of the tree. We could say that a tree is not a tree without all of these essential parts. You need roots, you need a trunk, and then the tree flowers. In the same way we could say our spiritual practice is not complete without these three aspects of sila, samadhi, and punya. So I'll talk a little bit at first about this quality of sila. The cultivation of wholesome qualities and the abandoning or restraining or turning away from indulging unwholesome qualities. Generosity, patience, kindness, compassion, forgiveness, tolerance, openness, contentment. These are beautiful words. And as we practice, we actually notice that they are more available to us. When we take the precepts at the beginning of the retreat, this is a formal step in beginning to incline our minds towards the wholesome. And as we incline our minds, so too do our thoughts begin to change, and so too do our actions begin to change. The Buddha said, speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So as we cultivate these qualities and begin to express them in our lives, the world notices. It is inevitable. Speak or act with a pure mind, with kindness, with tolerance, with forgiveness, with compassion, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. I've always found it interesting that in the Buddhist tradition, they talk a lot about the fact of, that we are born with what they call original goodness or basic goodness. It's very different from the Christian tradition or some forms of the tradition. Christian tradition which talks a lot about original sin. I don't know how many of you perhaps grew up with that idea original sin. But it is quite different in the Buddhist tradition, this idea of original goodness, and it takes some time to um, orient ourselves towards that. But this cultivation of sila um, begins to reveal to us that yes, deep in my heart there is this purity, this innocence, this generosity, this wanting to express my love and my my good will to people. The heart really is available and we find it beginning to wake up as we practice. Whereas the thinking mind has all kinds of reasons and limits the heart has no bounds and sometimes acts out of its goodness and compassion in ways that actually defy reason. I read a book by a man named Paul Farmer. He's a doctor who works in Haiti. He, wrote a, wonder, uh, he a woman named Tracy Kidder wrote a wonderful book about him called Mountains Beyond Mountains and it's about his work as a doctor in Haiti. In one uh, story in the book it tells how he walked seven hours to help one family and he was criticized for it. There were many other families that also needed his help. He said in reply, if you say that seven hours walk is too long to treat two families, you are saying that their lives matter less than some others and that the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that is wrong with the world. There's a story from the Buddhist time of his close disciple Ananda. The monks would often be practicing in the forest or wandering on the roadside and at that time in India there were communal wells and so one day Ananda was out in the forest and he came upon a well it was a hot day he wanted some water so he asked a young woman there for some water. Now at that time in India as today, there were very strict laws which divide people into castes or classes. And the Buddha, being having been raised as a prince in a Brahmin family, um, traditionally it would have been forbidden for him to invite members of another caste to be part of his entourage, to be part of his following, and yet he did that. He defied the customs of his time and invited people of all castes to uh, ordain with him, to join with him, to share meals, to live together in the, the way that they were at that time as, as monks, as practitioners. So Ananda was following the Buddha's example by asking this young woman, who was from a lower caste, for water. And she was shocked. She said, um, her name was Pakati, and she said, "'O monk, I am too humbly born to give you water to drink. "'Do not ask any service of me, lest your holiness be contaminated, "'for I am of low caste.' "'Ananda replied, "'I ask not for caste, but for water.' The woman's heart leaped joyfully, and she gave Ananda water to drink. Ananda thanked her and went away. She followed him at a distance. Having heard that Ananda was a disciple of the Buddha, the woman went to the Buddha and said, "O Lord, help me and let me live in this place where your disciple Ananda dwells, so that I may take care of him, for I love Ananda had fallen in love, <laughs> and the Blessed One, the Buddha, understood the emotions of her heart and she said, Pakati, and he said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you have seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others." Certainly in our world, we can notice that expressions of compassion, of kindness, of generosity, of forgiveness cut across all distinctions of race, of class, of gender, or orientation. This is what is meant by sangha. One definition of Sangha is those people who are wanting to cultivate this more open-hearted way of being with each other. In the Buddhist texts, these good qualities of being are often linked, or likened to the perfume of beautiful flowers. Their fragrance lingers and makes us feel wonderful. When we've been with somebody who's exceptionally loving, or kind, or generous, there's something that lingers in us, even when we are no longer in their presence. And we are attracted to people with these extraordinary qualities of heart. I think of Martin Luther King. I think of the Dalai Lama. I think of ordinary people that I have met in the course of my life in unexpected ways. (coughs) These acts of kindness, of care, of generosity, we love to be around that. And when we see them in others, it reminds us of what is inside of us as well. It seems like they are reminders of our own heart's goodness. So inclining the mind toward... Um being attracted to these qualities is the foundation of our practice. there was a a monk in Thailand um, who was very revered, very well known by the name of Buddha dasa and in writing about these these qualities of um wholesome expression he said as wonderful as this these qualities are the cultivation of these qualities and leading a moral life in the world he said morality by itself stops well short of the elimination of craving aversion and delusion therefore Even though as wonderful as it is, it cannot do away with suffering. By itself, the cultivation of these wholesome qualities is not enough if we are interested in true liberation. But it is excellent preparation for cultivating samadhi. If we sit down with a mind that is racked by regret, by remorse, by anger, by unresolved issues of forgiveness, it's hard to concentrate. It's hard to bring ourselves there, to be present. I remember when I began practice, this this point was made often by Asian teachers who said that Westerners, you know, as Westerners, especially back in the late 70s, early 80s, we just wanted the you know the goodies we didn't this morality stuff okay you know we've heard it all in church but let's talk about enlightenment that's what I really want you know so the Asian teachers would often remark that trying to practice meditation without a strong moral foundation is like trying to row a boat which is tied to a dock (laughs) it simply doesn't work your practice is not going to have any any foundation. So the next quality of um, training that we, we, we open ourselves to in coming on retreat is that quality of samadhi or concentration, sometimes called calmness, collectedness, stability, that ability to gather our attention and focus and sustain our attention over time. Samadhi is not something we can force, although sometimes it's taught that way. I think of it rather as, um, rather like, almost like water. It has a kind of yielding quality, but by by bringing ourselves back over and over again, yielding to the present, yielding to the breath, yielding to the experience of being in the yoga pose, feeling the steps as we walk. We incline our mind to be present over and over again in that kind of gentle shepherding way. We're yielding our distractions, our worries, our stories, our obsessions, we keep coming, bringing ourselves back into the present. It's like the sign down on the road that you see when you come into spirit, Spirit Rock. Yield to the present. Samadhi, to me, has that quality of always yielding to come back into the present. As samadhi develops, we discover a power of mind. With development, samadhi has these qualities that begin to reveal themselves. The mind's natural purity begins to reveal itself. Its clarity, its strength begins to reveal itself. Again, um, this Buddhadasa speaks of samadhi as the focus and steadiness of mind necessary for doing a particular task. Whether that's the task of washing the dishes, following the breath, doing yoga, cultivating moment-to-moment mindfulness, working at your desk, driving to work, raising a child, That focus and steadiness of mind that keeps us coming back to one thing. I think of concentration in practice as a container. As we open in meditation to the 10,000 joys and sorrows of our lives, we need a way to contain our experience. Concentration provides that container. We don't go flying off into reactivity the minute something emotional happens. We have a way to stay present. Whether it is being present with our own aversion or in a difficult encounter with someone, we have a way to contain the experience. Because we have that, that, that cultivation of that quality of coming back and containing and stabilizing in the present. Traditionally, it is, said, it is said that training the mind in concentration teaches us two important abilities. One, as we've been saying, how to focus and steady the attention. What that leads to eventually is an ability to see beneath the surface appearance of things. And that becomes a very important uh as we continue in our practice. Secondly, training in concentration teaches us about letting go. It teaches us how to release our clinging to our stories, to the past, to the future, to what we want, to what we fear, and instead just come back into the present. That is a training in how to let go. First we train the attention to return to the breath. Then we open the field of attention to include other experiences occurring in the present. Sensations, emotions, thinking, hearing, tasting, smelling. These are always going on in the present. And so we can use any of these to return to present awareness and that is very much the domain of mindfulness practice. We don't just stay with the breath, but we learn to return to whatever is most predominant and showing itself in our present experience. So samadhi practice can be very pleasurable, leads to a stillness of mind, a great calmness of being, and sometimes great bliss, but not necessarily to insight. In other words, samadhi is not an end in itself. This is a subtle point because often the people associate the bliss of samadhi with the attainment of the final fruits, of nirvana, wow, this is great, this must be it, I finally found it. It's very pleasurable, it's very enjoyable, and we think, I'm not letting go of this, oh no, I'm going to stay here. But this bliss of being is only temporary. And once the samadhi wears away, we come back into the hindrances, we come back into the same old stories. We don't find that it is very liberating. So, throughout all the different Buddhist traditions, they talk a lot about the right balance between samadhi and insight practice. You see this over and over again written about in Buddhist literature, the balance that's needed between samadhi practice, that calmness of being, that steadiness and focus, and the opening to penetrating, liberating insight. The Buddha once gave a talk about this and he talked about, um, he said there are four kinds of people, four kinds of people. He said the first kind of person is the kind that is well established in both calmness and insight. And To those people he said, good work, just keep going, just keep cultivating both these things. The second kind of person, he said, is very well established in calmness but has no insight. To those people, he said, what is needed is for you to cultivate more insight in your practice, more wisdom. The third kind of person, he said, is overflowing with the insight but has no calmness of being. To that person, he says, what is needed in your practice is more calmness, more steadiness, more focus. And finally, the fourth kind of person he described, he said, has neither calmness nor insight. And of course, when we hear this, we think, well, that's probably me. (laughs) To those people, he said, what is needed is cultivation of both sides, both calmness and insight. Now, when I started practice, um, I was definitely the third kind of person. I had tons of insights. And I thought that was the point of practice. I came for insights and I was happily having them. (laughs) And I was intensely interested in, you know, let's sit down and see what happens next, you know, (laughs) because it was just like, whoa, whoa, so much going on. I was discovering a lot, making all these connections. I thought, wow, I'm really getting my money's worth here. (laughs) The problem was that I had very little calmness, very little ability to stay focused, to let those insights sort of move through me. Instead, every new insight that I had seemed to provoke storms of thinking about And storms of making plans and agendas for self improvement when I got home. It also led to a lot of, you know, attacks of self judgment, of seeing how foolish I had been and how, you know, I really, even though by then I had already gotten a PhD in psychology, I just felt like, oh my goodness, something got missed in all that training in psychology. I was just seeing that. There was still so much I was unaware of. So lots of insight, no calmness. Luckily my teacher kept bringing me back into the process and teaching me how to settle and how to allow the process to unfold so that over time all the drama settled down and calmness, lo and behold, even with me, actually began to appear. And with calmness I could relax. I could see the changing nature of moment-to-moment experience. And over time, and it was a huge, wonderful teaching, I came to trust the organic unfolding of this process of meditation. That insights come in their own time, born from stillness, born from calmness, and they ripen and deepen in their own way. We don't need to do the insights. They come and do their work through us. We can trust the process. It is only with calmness that we really can see clearly. We can see impermanence. We can see the fluidity of what we call self. We can see the suffering of grasping and clinging and the liberating power of letting go. When we really see clearly, we understand that we don't need to get rid of anything. We don't need to strategize about how we're going to deal with things. That the seeing in itself is enough. It has a kind of power when, when it is supported by that calmness of being. So this balance is very important. What about when there is more calm than insight? when there's just sitting, okay, I'm sitting, I'm being with the breath, yeah, so? (laughs) In, In that case, what's needed actually is more sense of investigation, perhaps more contact with what it is we want to learn more a sense of what is motivating us to sit there. We finally see that we must love the truth more than we love the comfort or the security of nothing happening. Albert Einstein was asked once um, what he thought it was in him that led him to make these amazing discoveries. Was it that he had a, his, that his intellect was so much more developed or what, what was it? And he answered that he thought um, it wasn't that he was that much smarter than most people, but that he had more curiosity than most people. I love that answer. And it really is true in practice as well. Do we have curiosity about what we are discovering? Do we have interest? Do we have motivation? Those are necessary if we want to really go deeply into practice. So from the um, Chan tradition, a 6th century sutra tells us this. These two, concentration and insight, are like the two wings of a bird. If their practice is lopsided, you will fall from the path. To one-sidedly cultivate concentration without practicing understanding is called dullness. To one-sidedly cultivate insight without practicing calmness is called being crazed. (laughs) dullness and craziness although they are different are the same in that they both perpetuate an unwholesome perspective so a useful question that we might ask ourselves is in what situation of our lives would it be useful to cultivate greater calmness greater focus greater steadiness Where could that be useful in your life? In what situation of your life do you need to cultivate more insight, more clarity, more understanding? So the third quality, that of punya or insight, liberating insight or wisdom. Traditionally, the classic definition of this quality is insight into the three characteristics. And this is very much the goal of the pasana meditation, what we teach here at Spirit Rock. The three characteristics of every moment of experience, every moment of our lives is touched by impermanence. Every moment of our lives is touched by this quality of emptiness of self that there's no one directing or controlling our experience. It is unfolding according to laws and conditions all by itself. We sit, everything arises unbidden. We don't ask for certain thoughts to come, they simply arise. We don't ask for emotions to come, they simply arise according to causes and conditions. But there's no one directing or controlling any of it. We also see that every moment of our experience, the greatest thought, the most fantastic experience, the worst thing that could ever happen, the most difficult mind state, all are marked by these three characteristics. It is also said that because of our blindness or our kind of dullness of of perception, we do not see these three characteristics. We take what is impermanent to be permanent, we take what is transparent and ungraspable to be solid and enduring, and we take what is unsatisfactory to be happiness. That is our condition as uh, we start practice. So we hear about these three characteristics and we might begin to reflect on them in our own experience. Yes. I can see that things change. Yes, I can see that when I want things to be different than they are, I contract. I suffer. Yes, I can see that this self is not locatable as an entity. The body is not self. The thoughts are not self. The emotions are not self. They arise, they live through us, and they pass. But they are not who we are. And then through practice these insights deepen and they become more of a living reality. We know them to be a description of all aspects of our own bodies and minds. And this is a significant turning point in practice when they become living truths in our own experience. Why is this significant? Because insight in this way is liberating. It frees us from trying to grasp the ungraspable, from looking for happiness where it is not to be found. These insights show us how it is we suffer and how we can free ourselves. We find that it is workable, and that is a great place of freedom. Carl Jung said, who looks outside dreams? Who looks inside awakens? When we look inside we come to see that there is no problem that cannot be solved by looking deeply into our own experience. How we hold things, how we relate to things is the place of practice. Again, Buddha Dasa said, it is a strange thing that the answer to any problem that a person is trying to solve is usually already present though concealed in his very own mind. That's good news. That gives us a place to look. And this was very much the Buddha's experience. He looked, and he looked, and he looked, and he finally found an extraordinary understanding through his well-developed powers of samadhi, through his strong determination, his curiosity, his absolute commitment to liberation, to penetrate the final illusion of birth and death and made this enormous discovery that we're all still trying to find in ourselves. I'd like to repeat this, um, that the Buddha said that Howie shared with you the other night because it's so amazing. It's really just completely amazing. The Buddha said on his awakening, There is a field of experience beyond the entire field of matter, this entire field of mind that is neither this world nor another world, nor both, neither moon nor sun. This I call neither arising nor passing away, nor abiding, neither dying nor rebirth, It is without support, without development, without foundation. This is the end of suffering. That's what he found. And this is not an idle discovery, but one born of a great power of mind and a great determination. And it is not something that we can get by thinking about it, by reading about it, by studying the history of Buddhism, or by sitting at the feet of great Buddhist scholars. It is only born out of our own practice, our own training in sila, samadhi, and insight. Buddha Dasa said, It is just when the mind is quiet and cool, in a state of well-being, undisturbed, well-concentrated and fresh, that the solutions to our persistent problems arrive. Taxing the mind, thinking about our problems, stressing the mind, pressuring ourselves is not what is needed when you're trying to resolve your problems, trying to figure something out. But Knowing how to concentrate, how to give the mind a place of rest and refreshment so that it can function more efficiently is a great piece of Dharma wisdom. The poet Rumi put it this way, we are the mirror as well as the face in it. We are pain and also what cures pain. We are the sweet, cold water, as well as the jar that pours. We are tasting the taste of eternity in every moment. So these three qualities, these three uh, ways that we can work with our own mind, sila, samadhi, and punya, all function together and they each support each other. Morality supports our ability to concentrate. Our ability to concentrate supports deep insight. Deep insight supports our understanding of the importance of a moral foundation. And so they all support each other. I think of them as like an instruction manual, really, for living an awakened life. They're not theoretical but very practical. And there's only three things to remember. You know, there's a lot of lists in the Buddhist tradition. The eight this's, and the ten that's, and the five those. And this is only three things to remember. <laughs> <laughs> so make these your practice, and you will always have a way to know if your practice is working well or not. So let's sit together for just a moment. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on June 16, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.